Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Well, I just got back from New York City. Now that the pandemic has apparently officially or unofficially or semi-officially wound down, it's easier to get in and out. Not easy. Actually, that's not true. It's harder to get in and out of the city. <laughs> I was it's much say, harder. There's more people going, right? Because more yeah. people are going, and the George Washington Bridge and the Lincoln Tunnel are just seem to be backed up every day. Now, I know that this is not a topic of national interest, but it has an effect on me because it's set, it really backs up the traffic around here. But I was in New York, and I happened to stop by St. Paul the Apostle, our mother church, which is right next to Lincoln Center in Manhattan, if anybody knows their way around. And it was just nice to be there. It was nice to be in the church. It was nice to be able to walk over to the tomb of servant of God, Isaac Hecker, and say a few prayers, ask a few petitions, get them on my side a little bit, because he is entombed there, as people might know. And I just thought I'd mention that. So I was in and out of New York City today, and now I'm with you guys, and it's so good to see you again, my friends Dennis and Tom. Yeah, and we were looking for you, at least. I, Tom, did you watch it online? No, I didn't. I had okay. the computer issues today. So. Okay, well, I watched it online, and I was playing Where's Waldo with Drew. We were looking, and of course, we do this on Zoom, face, and we see each other's faces. But uh, I realized as I was scanning the crowd and picking out, and it's still online, it's called the Isaac Hecker Symposium on Isaac Hecker Spirituality or something like that. You can get it at paulus.org if you want to get into the background. Of, it was uh, a nice symposium. It was a, I thought a it was nice great. Talk. Yeah, it was a nice talk on Father Isaac Hecker and his spirituality, especially in his later years. Right. But I don't think you would have seen me because I normally try to pick the seat next to the exit and or the bathroom. Yeah. So yeah. just like at prison, right, Tom? Yeah, that's right. Near yeah. the door. Sit in the yeah. back. Where you can see the door, take too. back pews, right? Yeah. They're always in the back. <laughs> that was mentioned when we sat down to get going. I think it was Father Ron who said, we do have seats in the front, like as normal in a Catholic. Yeah, I heard him say that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good Catholics, though. I was sitting in the back. But anyways, I couldn't identify you. I was picking out the Paulist. I knew him. And I was surprised. I was like, well, this guy came from Tennessee, and this guy came from the West Coast. And, like, they all came in for this. I was yeah. really impressed with the just... the interest of the priest getting the time and making it happen. But I realized that I do not know what the back of Deacon Drew's head looks like. So I could not pick him out of that crowd. I tried the whole time. I said, oh, no, that's not him. I don't think, well, that one might be him. <laughs> but it wasn't. That so. seems like a fact that I should be able to make some use out of. But right now, I can't figure out how to no, do that's it. All right. that's yeah, all right. I was traveling incognito. So we saw, I saw and met several of the Paulist associates. That's the group of lay people that, are, that the Paulist fathers have organized across the country here and there. And they came in for the symposium, very nice people, all it came out of their ways. I, one lady came from Canada, I met. So it was a nice day. And uh, no, it was lovely. I enjoyed it. I, put it. I mirrored it up to the big TV from my phone and sat there and had a cup of coffee this morning. And then we got an ordination it. on Saturday too, though, right? There's going to be an ordination on Saturday. So oh. again, so that would. New Paulus. That's that's too, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, the Paulist fathers are growing oh, and sustaining. 
so, in providing us this platform. Yeah, yeah. very nice. Nice of them. So today we're going to talk to a guest who's going to talk about Father Hecker would have appreciated this with his emphasis on the compatibility of being an American and being a Catholic, which was highly questionable when he made the case, by the way, in the 19th century. We're going to talk to a lady who wrote a book on Blessed Stanley Rother. Father Rother is a priest, or was a priest from Oklahoma, the first U.S.-born martyr priest. So we're going to be talking about Father Stan, who died in the 80s. With It's a story that's near and dear to my heart because I had the privilege in, I believe it was in the early 90s, and it still goes on, if you want to jump on this, the Marino Fathers have a have a pilgrimage to the martyrs of Central America. And they go to El Salvador and they go to Guatemala. So anyways, long story short, I went to Father Stan's parish in up in the mountains of Atitland and uh, in Guatemala. And it's this old, built in the 1500s, 1500s, white colonial Spanish church. I'll just tell you two stories, real quick stories. So they... We learned the story of Father Stan, which you'll all learn when we talk to Maria shortly. And as we were in his parish, we stayed the night, and there were all these rooms. And they put me in this room. There wasn't anything in it, really, to speak of. It was a little bed in the corner, so I bunked there. And I'm looking at this place, and on the floor, in the middle of the floor, is a clear plastic box, a lucite, that hard plastic stuff that you put stuff in or whatever, baseballs that people have signed baseballs or whatever, lucite. So I'm looking at this box. And so one of the marionolers comes in and I said, what's this? He says, what? I said, this box, I pick it up. There's nothing in it. There's no bottom on it. It's turned upside down on the floor. And he says, oh, look closer. Look at the floor. And I look at the floor and I said, what? He says, See the hole? I said, yeah. He said, that's where they shot Stan. That's where they caught that's him. The he was hiding hole. within the rectory. He wasn't in his bedroom. He was in this room. And that's where they put two bullets in his head right there. And that little piece of lucite was hmm. covering the spot. Now it's a chapel, I understand. They've turned that into a little chapel in the parish, which is much better than letting Deacon Dolan crash there to me in the Lucite box. And then the other story, so we saw the parish and we saw all the stuff he did. And one of the things he did, most colorful stoles of South American stoles. I'm not sure, but I think he might have been the first one to do that because he started that with the women as a co-op. And they produced a lot they of made them. Stoles. They made this? Oh, okay. Yeah, early on because they weave. If you look at the Mayan women, it's like kilts. If you understand the patterns, you can tell what village she's from. They would weave okay, their dresses yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So anyway, he said, well, you know, and he, and he had them do that with stoles because they already had the skills and they sold them up here and they're quite popular. So priests and deacons wearing those. Anyway, that was one of the things Stan did. So after we're done and we're leaving the parish, Santiago, Atitlan, St. James the Apostle, and there's 20 of us, I'm the only deacon, the rest are all priests on this pilgrimage. And there was one brother, Benedictine brother. And so uh, it's Sunday mat. We're going to go Sunday mats with the people. Okay, cool. So we vest, and the parish presents us with these lovely stoles that the women made there from the co-op. And it's got 
pictures of the parish and Lake Atitlan and all the stuff, the local, the, the food they grow, the corns, the pine trees and the mountains, whatever. So it's very local, it's very beautiful. So we put on these stoles, we're all vested. It's 11 o'clock mass and we go in. So we go in, so this is very nice. Well, first of all, the place is full of Indians. I mean, Mayan Indians everywhere. And we come walking in for the processional. And these people are grabbing us. They are kissing our hands. They are giving us their children to bless. They are treat- I have never been treated like such a rock star in my life. The love these people had for all of these gringo padres from El Norte. And so we went to Mass. It was very nice. And we come out. And again, we get the same kind of reception, people all around us and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow. Talk about hospitality. That I have never, my own ordination wasn't that special. <laughs> I could feel the love. And they said, yeah, well, that's for Stan. He said, and I said, well, what do you mean? And one of the Marianos says, yeah, you don't get it. He says, you think you're just you. To them, you are El Padres del Norte, the fathers from the north, the only ones that ever protected they us, dare. cared about us, helped us, and in this case, died for us. So I actually got some of Stan Rothers' mm, reflected glory really? splashed on my unworthy self. And I will take that to my grave. That was one of the most moving things I have ever seen in my life. So well, let me just say that is a wonderful story. And, uh, and you have shared with Tom and I before the story of living or sleeping that night in the place where he got martyred. But up until you brought Stan Rother to my attention, I really it was one of those people who didn't really know who he was. And so if you're uh, out there listening to us and you're one of those people who don't really know who he was, you're about to be really enlightened with a wonderful story told mm. by a wonderful author who we are going to interview now. All right, let's do that. So today we are honored to have Maria Ruiz Scaparlanda, who is an award-winning author, journalist, and retreat facilitator. She's published broadly in both the Catholic and secular press, traveling on international assignments in Central America and the Caribbean, Israel, Turkey, and throughout Europe. Maria blogs at day by day with maria.blogspot.com. And she and her husband reside in Norman, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Now, we're here to talk to Maria about her wonderful book, This is for your spiritual reading, boys and girls. This is a good one. It is The Shepherd Who Didn't Run, and it's published by OSV, our Sunday Visitor Press, and it is the story of the first U.S. martyr in the history of the church, the first U.S.-born martyr. And so he's one of our guys, and he died relatively recently. It's not like this was 20 years ago. So, and his name was Father Stan Rother, also of Oklahoma. So, Maria, welcome. We're glad to have you. Happy to have you. Happy you made it. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, how close to you in Oklahoma do you live to where Father Stan lived? Oh, probably 40 minutes west. Okarchi is, as it sounds, a small town, and it's northwest of Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. 
I do need to make a correction. Even though I live in Oklahoma, we are University of Texas fans. I met him, <laughs> my husband, of 41 years at the UT Austin at the Catholic Center. So we're Longhorns, diehard. Oh, yeah, those fighting <laughs> words over there, yeah. Norman. But yes, okay. yes, it is. We're trying to protect you here, Maria. You got to work <laughs> with us here. Huh? Put but, your head in the noose right away. Yes, and so you are a, acquainted with the Paulist fathers who do the ministry there or did the ministry there. At yeah, they did. Of Austin, University yes, of Texas at Austin. Such a special time in people's lives. And mm. we are one of those college sweetheart people that met and then continued doing things at the Catholic Center and got married right after graduation. So have great respect for the Paulist ministry. Yeah, good. Yeah, they know how to do that college thing real well. Yeah. Yes. So let me ask you, the first question I have for you is a simple one. Explain to us, Blessed Stanley Rother is the first U.S.-born martyr. Why is he not a saint instead of a blessed? Well, that's the hope and the plan, right? <laughs> Stanley Rother was from Oklahoma, which I find Probably the most exciting thing is how ordinary he was, how contemporary he is, and the fact that he's from the middle of the country. No offense to people on the East Coast, but I think it's awesome to have the first American martyr be from the middle of everything that people fly over. <laughs> but do you know, I thought if you were a martyr, you were automatically a saint. No, that like would be, no right. So he skipped having to have a first miracle to become a, to be beatified, to become blessed or be declared blessed. So he skipped that previous step because he became a declared martyr by Pope Francis. But he still needs one more miracle in order mm -hmm. to become a canonized saint. Oh, so I was wrong. I thought martyrdom put you right. What do yeah. we need miracles for? This guy, this person, this woman had a, this yeah, no. a real deal. And okay. how cool would it be if he also became the first male-born saint in the U.S.? Yeah. yeah well, you know, we have three American-born saints, but right. they're all women, right. right? So he would be a great candidate to be the first American-born male. Oh, he's running with Father Hecker, so be careful. There's a few contenders. <laughs> There's a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, no, well, the women are holier than the men. We all know that anyways. They drag us along out of compassion. Yeah. <laughs> one of the guys that step up. So, Maria, how did you come to write this book? What prompted it? I have been writing from a home office all of my adult life. I have four kids they're all grown, married, having kids of their own. I have 14 grandkids. So I've been able to do the work I do locally without having to go into an office, which I guess is no big deal these days. Everybody did that during 2020, right? The local archbishop here invited me to participate in the historical commission for Father Stanley Rother back when they were collecting the information for 
sending it to Rome with all the interviews, all the biography, everything that you're supposed to send in for him to be considered or to be moved along in the canonization process. And they needed someone who spoke Spanish, and Spanish is my first language. So I was able to work with the Historical Commission for two of the years they worked on things. So I knew about him from the time we moved to Oklahoma because in the local schools, in the Catholic schools here, they talk a lot to the kids about saints in general, but local saints, holy people that live around us. Mm. So when my kids came home talking about this priest from Oklahoma who died in Guatemala, I was super interested in that. But it wasn't until the cause started and became official that I became involved with that. Changed bishops in there. And when the archbishop that we have now, Paul Polkley, became Archbishop of Oklahoma City, we were on a trip to Guatemala, crossing the Lake Atitlan. And he said, Maria, we need a biography for Father Rother. And I said, yes, we do. And it wasn't long until he called me into his office and asked if I would be willing to write it. And I'm, I'm honored. He's a beautiful person that I want everyone to hear about. He is. Let me ask you this question in your book, which is a wonderful book. I want to say that again. Everybody buy this book if you want to Thank be you. uplifted, if you want to be proud of being a Catholic, if you want to be proud of being an American for a minute. I know we're used to not feeling that all the time, but if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, this is good medicine, the shepherd who didn't run. Now, is there a favorite story of Father Stan that you have recounted in your book that's a favorite to you? Maria? There's so many things about him and I'm still, I feel like he, he walks with me these days and I'm still getting to know pieces of his life. Everywhere I go and I'm interviewed to talk or I'm invited to, to give a speech like to a group of women in Missouri last month. And sure enough, there's always somebody who's related to the Rother family. It's amazing the God sense of humor about this guy. He, everybody wants to get to know him better once they hear about him, but we need people to hear about him. So I'll tell you two stories that I love. He went to seminary in San Antonio and he flunked first year of theology, just flunked, was told to go home and consider a different work, a different sense of ministry, whatever he thought he was going to do, it wasn't going to be a priest. He went to the archbishop or the bishop at the time and told him that he still felt called to be a priest. And the bishop said, okay, we will find you another seminary. And it was, even at that time, it was hard for him to be allowed into a seminary after flunking. When I tell that story in front of the teenagers, they love to hear that he flunked a year <laughs> of anything. That makes him more like us, right? He didn't get everything right. So this guy who flunked and then had to go to a second seminary, Emmitsburg, Maryland, is where he graduated from, Mount St. Mary's. He, five years into his priesthood, goes to Santiago Atitlan, and not only does he learn Spanish, 
but he learns the very, very difficult Mayan language of the Zutu Hill community there. That if you ever hear it spoken, oh, that's it is amazing. Nothing I'm, like yeah, Spanish. Yeah, I'm and still, to, I'm trying, I'm still trying to work on Spanish all these yes, years. Yes, no, you know? exactly. I need some good immersion, but I couldn't figure that out either. You can't pass first theology, but you're doing, you're hanging with the Atiteco people and speaking their language. I'm still struggling with Spanish. It's amazing. I'm still struggling with English. (laughs) I say that all the time. I'm claiming it it being my second language, but (laughs) that's the first story. And I love that reality. All of that really happened. He was able to celebrate Mass, the liturgy for the local people in their own language. That's just remarkable. Might be his first miracle, actually. (laughs) The other story is that when he died and his body was going to, or when he was martyred and his body was going to be sent back to the States, the local parishioners asked if they could keep his heart. And as a mom, I cannot even imagine what that request must have been like for his parents. And yet they said yes. And I'm convinced they said yes so freely because they knew that he already had given his heart to the Zuchu Hill. Very literally, he had given his whole life to them. And it made sense in a very spiritual understanding of what it means that who we do this for that they would say yes to them keeping his heart there and they buried the heart after celebrating mass with the jars of his blood next to the chalice of the body of and blood of Christ which to me is the most powerful image ever is to have his own blood on the altar with Christ's blood and his heart afterwards being buried underneath that altar. I don't know. It still blows my mind and get, it leaves yeah. me quite speechless. Yeah. It's an old, it's, well, it's an old tradition that we, if you go to any altar of any church, whatever church you go to, if you look under the linen, you'll see a slab there with probably with four crosses on each corner and if you were to look on the back side of it it'll even tell you who the bones of which martyr are in there going back to the time when we used to celebrate the mass and the altar was the sarcophagus of a martyr a christian martyr so this is this goes way back to ancient practice and yes they they are very big on father stan they love stan down there father stan came from a very humble background in Oklahoma, he was a farmer and a big German family. And uh, so that would be, when was Father Stan born, Maria? In oh. 1936. Yeah, 36. Oh, 30, yeah. 30, 30, 35, 1935. Yeah. 1935. So mm-hmm. he's living in Oklahoma in 1935. He's growing up on a farm, doing the farm work, very good at that. Tell us a little bit about that. Just give us a little flavor of that. Because we're going to walk, what we want to do now is walk through the timeline of this story here so our listeners can catch up here to what we're talking about. No, I'd be happy to. So he is the oldest of five children, although one died 
early on. I don't think she even made it to a year old. So he grew up in a family that focused on family, farm, and church. Those were their activities. And I think it shows in everything that he was invested in. He was, by the time he went to Catholic school, all 12 years, and that senior year, he was the president of the FFA, the Future Farmers of America. <laughs> he was involved in some drama productions. He loved music. He played basketball. Nobody thought that he was going to become a priest or had any interest in that. It wasn't until he was graduated from high school that he announced to his parents that he felt he had a vocation. So his next in line sister, Sister Marita, she also announced at the same time she needed to pursue a desire for a vocation with the adorers of the blood of Christ. It's a community out of Wichita. And the two of them left at the same time, one headed north, one headed south to San Antonio. And I think all the memories that I collected from people, all the different interviews about Father Stan, his time in San Antonio was spent doing a lot of manual things. And I think it's because he, that came natural. He could fix things. He could build things. And unfortunately, the Learning Latin and having all the textbooks in Latin was a real hardship for him. So as I said, he failed first theology and he was sent to Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg. He became a priest in 1963 and five years later volunteered for the Oklahoma mission in Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala. And what's interesting about that time is that it was a direct response to Pope John the Twenty-Third, who asked the dioceses of the U.S. to of the North part of America to send missionaries to Central and South America. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, it's the only time that's ever been no, in the church. That was really. Yeah rare and it made a lot of movement. Well, and it's very different. So when you go to Lake Atitlan, it's not necessarily the Marinols, the, even the Paulists who are down there in the different missions. It's the diocese of Oklahoma, the diocese out of Seattle. The, it's like they're from all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. all around that lake. We are no longer officially carrying it as a diocese, I mean, as a diocesan mission, but that's only because they have so many vocations now from Santiago Atitlan, so they don't need they don't need us anymore. Did, so Stan, did Father Stan have anything to do with those vocations? Well, that's what we all think. Yeah. That parish, just that parish in particular, went through... 400 years. It was one of the early mm-hmm. churches in that part of the world. 1500. Yeah. And yeah. they never had a vocation. After Father Stan died, they have had 15 that I know of. Wow. And I need to check up on the numbers again. Yeah. But those are 
Mayan Indians that are being ordained to oh, serve in the, in their the Mayans. people. Oh, okay. Yes. No, yeah. it's beautiful. Yes, it is. And that was a rare thing, right? Even when Father Stan was there to have a, he yes. had one working with him in his parish. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. Very rare. Well, that's What great. is it the saying is that the faith is bred on the blood of martyrs. And yeah. Again, I was just thinking that too. <laughs> yeah. The blood uh, of the martyrs is the seed of the church, I believe. Yes. yes. Oh. Yeah, that's, uh, so Father what, Stan what, was... One of the things I took from oh, your story there, before we get there, I'm sorry. Before, no, go ahead. No, before go we ahead. get to the martyrdom. One of the things I really took from your book and from his story was that he was just such a good man, such a good priest, so caring about his parishioners that I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if he had not been martyred, I still think he may be the source of a lot of vocations. He just was with them. No matter where they were, he was either having dinner in their house or helping them get food for their dinner. Dennis has said this twice now, and I'll just say it myself. The book is very inspirational. It's beautifully written. If he never was martyred, I still think it would have been a great story, a great book, his, oh, life, yeah. his life story. Yeah. I'm I, sorry for interrupting, Dennis. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that I've never thought about it from that point of view, but I totally agree with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> there were so many things he did. He's definitely the type of shepherd that smells like sheep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just that from Pope Francis's call to all the feasts today, but mm-hmm. he was living that. He was yep. definitely one of them. One thing that I think it's amazing and just a sign of God's presence in all of this is the same exact details that he grew up with, family, farm, church, and having that be the center of life for the culture he was in, mm-hmm. that's exactly the church in Santiago Titlan. They are very family-centered. They are farmers, and they love to be part of the church. And Father Stan could click right in, learn from them, and learn their language to the point where nobody, none of the other missionaries that were there at the time <laughs> tackles to heal the way that he did. No, it's well, a powerful it, it, thing. Just being a farmer and understanding mm-hmm. another farmer and understanding what the pressure is. And even maybe I know he did some work with them and helping them to improve their crops. And they admired exactly. him when they saw him, the priest, not even a Ladino. These are the social hierarchy. So at the bottom, mm-hmm. you have the Indians, the Mayans, and then the half Spanish, half Mayan would be the Ladinos. And then at the top, you have the full-blooded Spanish. Well, and here you have this white guy, this Norte Americano <laughs> priest yes. on a tractor doing <laughs> manual right. labor yeah. in a field with an Indian. And basically, yes. not to jump too far ahead, but that's why they killed him. How was that's it? why he was definitely persecuted. It wasn't really until 1980 that the whole unrest of the Civil War made it up to the mountains. It really is a remote village. Oh, it's out so there. Yeah. You have to work to get there. Yes, you do. Even, even today. Yep. But so, to have it, the army arrive in the town was a huge thing for the change in the culture. Everything changed right. once the army was right. there. People were being questioned, taken away. Right. Those desaparecidos, the ones that just the disappeared. Never, were never yeah. seen again. Well, I was just going to ask about that. Let's give the listener a little bit of background here. 
to the political situation in Guatemala. Guatemala is about the size of Kentucky, a little bit bigger, or the size of Tennessee, a little bit bigger than either one of those, not both together. But that, just to give you an idea, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, there was authoritarian government. And in the late 19th century, a lot of corporations from America, the ones that became United Fruit, various coffee companies, were given preference down there by the dictators. In 1944, there was a revolution which overthrew these people, and it was a quote-unquote leftist government. Now, I'm going to define leftist. This is what made them leftist. This is 1944, okay? Not 1844, 1944. And these guys, they instituted a minimum wage. That was the first big thing that we could not allow to stand. Even though, of course, we had instituted one, during the new, I think, during the New Deal, maybe even before that. They did literacy. They were taught, teaching Indians to read. They had land reform because the reform was, well, you already gave all our land away to United Fruit or whatever. And they also, these leftists, also banned the Communist Party in the country. No communism allowed. So naturally, they were communists. And then in 1954, the Guatemalan government, democratically elected for twice during 10 years, was overthrown with the help of the CIA, and there was a civil war. This was authorized by President Truman, President Eisenhower. Of course, John Foster Dulles was in tight with the United Fruit Company, which did a lot of lobbying in Washington. And then in 54, you got Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare. So there's a communist everywhere. So that's part of what the fever that's going on. And then starting in 1960, this is where Stan comes in, right? That was the year he was ordained. No, 63 he was ordained? Yeah. 63. 63, yeah. Right around the time Stan was ordained. Yeah, 1963. And then, and then from 1960... To 1996 was the Civil War. I want you to think about that. 36 years <laughs> of war in a place the size of Kentucky. You do not want to be an Atiteco with no power, no influence, who has been systematically excluded, exploited. And now we get to the point where, where the, the military in the early 80s is now working its way up to Father Stan's parish, St. James the Apostle, Santiago, Atitlan, near Lake Atitlan. So that's the background, and they've been going at this, and before that, professors, union people, anybody with any education who opposed the government, whatever, they've already been disappeared. You don't start with the Indians. You start with the people that can oppose you. Now they're down on the lower level, going after catechists, priests, whatever. So that's what Stan Rother goes back to. He has come and gone to Oklahoma a couple of times. And while this is raging, everybody's saying, don't come back. And this is the impressive part. Father Stan goes back. He goes back knowing what I just told you better than I do. He's got people he's buried. He's out in the fields finding his catechists, tortured, brutally maimed, and all this other stuff. So that's the background. 
so Maria, if you could take it from there and tell us, so when Stan, Father Stan goes down there, what was that, 1977, was it? He went down late uh, It was five years after he was ordained. So in 68. Oh, oh 68, he was down there. So mm-hmm. why don't you take it from there? So he goes down there. At that time, it was definitely a big group of people. It was a dozen people just from the Oklahoma mission alone. And at the time, it was one diocese. The diocese encompassed both Tulsa and Oklahoma City, and that split over the time that Father Stan was there. When you're setting up the whole history of the political side, I think it's important to note that it wasn't just Guatemala, right? You have that whole Central America was on Mm -hmm. fire. Father Stan was martyred a year, exactly a year after Archbishop Romero. So that gives you a little bit of insight into how big this was, everything that was happening at the time. And by the time 1980 came along and they had the army in town, he was the only one left from the Oklahoma mission. People had already gone back even before the hostility and the violence had grown. Some priests left the priesthood. Some went back because it was just impossible to be there. He he was the lone wolf left doing ministry. And he had an associate pastor who was a Mayan Indian also, not from Santiago, but from a nearby village. So that alone says something about the kind of man he was. Sure. That he was what still is, there. He was still there. He was the last man standing mm-hmm. at the time. And priests were being killed all around him. The year he was murdered, 10 priests died that year in Guatemala. 10. And you got to think about how brazen this right-wing government was to kill Americans. An American priest. You got to be pretty sure that you're in tight with the boys in Washington who are giving you the guns and the bullets and the uniforms. That I'm the school of the Americas, right? Yeah, but my point is... Benny Georgia, yeah. Yeah, it's all of that. It's the four church women in El Salvador Maria was referencing. It's all the martyrs of Central America. Recently, within our lifetimes, those of us sitting here, nuns and priests and brothers and all that that were killed, you had to have impunity to know that this isn't... The U.S. ambassador isn't going to care if we kill Americans. You know, the money will still come. They'll still train us at Fort Benning. You know, they'll still support us. And they weren't wrong, which is amazing to me. I would think that this would be a problem, killing Americans. But 10, so the American martyrs and Stan died. So, Maria, let me ask you, tell me what awful things Father Stan was doing that made him a threat to the government. He was in line with Zuchuhil Mayan. He worked with them. He talked with them. He worshiped with them. He ate with them. That was his big guilt. Was he political? I think he responded to the situations, and he had definitely emotional responses, and his letters were beautifully written for the details that he gives us into what kind of situations he was facing. He wasn't the type that like wrote manifestos. 
he, he was, responded he was a to priest. his people. He was a shepherd. He was a yeah. shepherd. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. and the horrible things that he did was he started a co-op for Indians, <laughs> which could lift them out of poverty. He helped them with farming. Again, why are you even helping in it? And you have to remember, there's a famous saying, Stan repeats it in one of his letters. I don't remember who said it, but one of the missionaries said it. Might've been one of the Marianos. They said, it has become a political act hmm. down here to shake hands with an Indian. That's all you got to do. You just got to treat them like a human being. So think of the Jim Crow South and the idea that you would be respectful, shake their hand, treat them as an equal to you would have gotten you in trouble. It's that kind of mentality. So he did farming. He did a co-op, a couple education. Of did education. There's he still a break. school named after him oh, yeah. across the courtyard there. Yeah. So the name they had for him, the Zutu Hill, was Aplas. And Stanley is not a name that's easily right. translated. So Aplas means Francis, which mm -hmm. was his full name, Stanley Francis, Francis Rother. Right. He, and his letters shifted a lot and uh, over the time, but he would write letters to the bishops or letters to the Catholics in Oklahoma that were published in the diocesan papers. The one for September 1980 that was sent to the bishops of Tulsa and Oklahoma City, he begins by saying, the reality is that we are in danger, but we don't know when or what form the government will use to further repress the church. Given the situation, I am not ready to leave here just yet. There's a chance that the government will back off. If I get a direct threat or I'm told to leave, then I will go. But if it's my destiny that I should give my life here, then so be it. And I think that reflects his where he stood. That was his heart. That was the right. his point of reference. I think he was pacifying the bishop because he didn't do that. Yeah, correct. He, he did. He, he, he was told, and he said, "I promised yes. those people I would celebrate Mass at Easter. I know nuns that left during a time like this, and when they came back, the people said, yep. where were you when we needed you?'" He said, "I can't live with that." So exactly. even though he was saying, well, if I'm told to go or if so, the direct threat, this is what <laughs> you say to people that care about you. He had no intention of leaving those people or not going back as far as I can tell. What do you think, Maria? Oh, I think that's right. And I, really, when he did come back to Oklahoma in the spring of 81, but to go with your point, that Christmas, the letter that he wrote had what has become his signature statement. The shepherd cannot run at the first sign of danger. Pray for us that we may be a sign of the love of Christ for our people, that our presence among them will fortify them to endure these sufferings in preparation for the coming of the kingdom. This is where he was. This is who he was. And when he came to Oklahoma that spring, he brought with him his assistant at the parish. And I'm convinced that's why he came back. And I think he needed one more time at home to talk to the bishops, really tell them what was going on, to talk to his family and let them know exactly what was going on. It was like his time 
like Jesus the night before his mm. crucifixion. He was suffering mm-hmm. and he was remembering what it is that he felt called to do. And it had to be difficult to try to convey that to his family, for example. So he did go back. He had promised he would be there for Holy Week. And as you guys probably already know, Holy Week is a big deal in a Spanish-speaking culture. There's processions and there's the liturgies that go on all night. And he wasn't going to get away from that and leave them with none of that for Holy Week or Easter. He was the lone wolf. So he knew that it was not just the right thing to do, but the thing that he had to do. Right. And the other thing our listeners need to remember or realize is that this church is a beautiful white colonial church. It looked like something you would see in a Zorro movie or like that. (laughs) It looks like if you've ever been to Arizona, San Xavier del Bac, the mission there. It's the same time. It's just beautiful. It's just, it's unbelievable. It looks like a movie set and it's real and has been there for 400 years. But those people at the St. James the Apostle there, up on top, but up near the volcano, they haven't had a priest in that parish for 100 years before stand. The government kicked out all the Spanish priests that were there because, again, they wanted to run roughshod over the population. So you get rid of any kind of leadership. And they got rid of all the foreign priests they could, which was the Spanish, and that was in 1870. And then it was it wasn't until after World War II that you started to have priests return. And then, of course, as Maria said, the big thing was Pope John's appeal. So really, for them to have a priest was a big deal. For them to have a priest that spoke the Zutihil language, their language, was unbelievable. This red-headed German guy from America who would speak their language. So he knew what this meant to them. And, of course, his people were being repressed, were being killed. He was finding their bodies, particularly anyone in leadership, a catechist, whatever, anyone connected to the church, the radio station he had, another one of his crimes were, what did they do at the radio station, Maria? They taught, they did catechism and Cat- they did yeah, literacy. Yeah, ca- catechism classes, because that way they could they hear, hear it up right. the, at the top of the hills, the right. mountains. <laughs> they weren't doing liberation theology or political stuff. This no. was all <laughs> down the line. Mm-hmm. basic mission work. And that was it. This, there was nothing that really that we would think of in, or that he's been accused of. I have no doubt at some point someone has tried to turn him into some kind of Marx or something. But this was Matthew 25. He was taking mm-hmm. care of widows and orphans, wasn't he? Wasn't that his big focus? Was especially of the people that were killed who worked for the church, their children and their widows, Maria? Wasn't that? There's... Dad? One story that stands out in my mind about that exact thing, and it is the gift of presence that he gave them. And it was the same thing that coming back for Holy Week. There was one day when there was a, a, a lot of angst in the whole town. And as the day went on, there had been firing squads in different parts of the area. And they had brought the bodies all to the front of the church, to this big plaza. And all these men and boys were laying on the ground there. And the army called on the people and said, come claim your relatives. So these women 
had to come and say, this is my husband, my son, my brother, my grandchild, for that matter. And people were afraid. The women stood there and waited because they were afraid of being accused in the same way that the relative on the ground dead was. It, it was a real credible fear. And Father Stan's answer for what was happening that day was to use no words. He stood next to the women and that when one was ready to go up and claim the body, he walked with them and helped take the body away. And then he went back and he did it again and again until the ones that were left, nobody was going to claim. And then he collected those bodies and took them to the church to give them the proper care. Bury the dead. His revolutionary. Presence, it's his a crime. presence is the yeah. best and his biggest crime. That, yeah, no, really. That this guy was presence. a Christian. But mm-hmm. it, takes, it takes me back to, though, to what I was saying earlier, too, though. Again, had there been no martyrdom, blessed Stanley, he still would be a saint in my mind because of that. It's just when you read the book when you, and when you hear the, his story, you understand his whole life basically led to this. He's nothing but a priest. That's all he ever was. But he was all, all in as a priest to me. I'm sorry. I, yeah, know, no. I don't mean to preach it, but he just preach it, preach it brother. <laughs> <laughs> He's the epitome of what we should be as ministers and right. people. Maria just gave us. The most graphic example of what that could possibly look like in real time. Uh, it's not always comfortable. We think of a company that is just being with people who are in an okay environment, but obviously with the stress of any emotional horror of that situation to stand up. I think the underlying story here is grace, a God's presence in his life that he held nothing back and passed it right, right through to, to everyone he served. That's beautiful. I like how you said that. I'm still learning things from him. And I said that earlier. And one example is it wasn't until after the book was published that a friend of mine who is a priest out in Pennsylvania, or he was, he wrote me this letter. He read the book and he wrote me a letter describing what it meant to him as a diocesan priest, as a parish priest, to have one of his own, be recognized as the first American martyr. That, and he, what was beautiful about it was his point is he was what any parish priest anywhere does. He does the meetings, the baptisms, the preparations, the liturgies, you know, all the things that some are great and some are not so fun to do, but they're all part of what it means to be a parish priest. And he found such comfort and guidance in seeing Father Stan as someone that could show him how to do that in his daily quotidian life. When you looked at his schedule, what struck me so much is the energy that he brought, the constant energy. (laughs) And you can't give what you don't have. So he had, in his life, such a connection to be empowered, to have that ability 
to work with people 24-7. This was not a job. We had a situation where a priest was busy and comes out after saying a mass on a Sunday and he was wiped out. And my friend said to him, Father, you're tired. What happened? He says, oh, I said three masses today. And this, <laughs> so far away from Father Stan for 24-7, feeding, visiting the people, enjoying the culture, the life. But reading the book, I had that, question in the back of my head, how was he connected to God in such a powerful way that, and I'm sure he didn't use theology down there. There's a whole lesson there about what we need to do, especially at our church today, but a powerful connection with the good Lord is, I think, the only way he could have. Tom, Tom, I think you just hit on something really important. The fact that he had to learn the language, and I bet you're right. I don't know. I read the book too, and maybe Maria can help us out here, but I bet there was not a lot of time Catechesis, yes. Theology, I'm not so sure that he spent a lot of time talking about, well, you know, how many angels are there on the head of a pin? Oh, all of them. All and, of them. And when you think about it, and all the priests that we know, all the good priests that we know here that are not working under the conditions that, that the Blessed Father Stanley worked under, that's what it's all about. That's really what it's all about. The church is polarized these days, they say. Well, why? If you're just doing the work the ministry of parish life, you don't have time for polarization. Well, except, except, and this is a main takeaway, I think, Stanley rather polarized his society by doing Matthew 25. That's why I was asking Maria all these questions about his politics. He wasn't political. He didn't do anything that any missionary does, but he did see the dignity of the Mayans. He was not willing to write them off as less than human, which is what the powers that be wanted him to do and what they resented him not doing. But he didn't do anything. And so even in polarization, again, if it's all fine when it's in a book and it's another country, but go welcome an immigrant. Go ahead, go go to a cocktail party and say, yeah, we're taking in a Ukrainian family or something. Well, they're more sympathetic, but okay. So a Guatemalan family. You know, yeah, they just came over the border in Rio Grande. We're, we're going to set them up. Oh, you'll get some polarization. And all you're doing is you make it political, even though it's Matthew 25. So we still have this dynamic because a lot of it is the gospel is my point. If you do the gospel, there are people who will think that's radical. I think he had the great example of missionaries who came to Okarchi and to Oklahoma at that time period. To him, it was not a, an alien thought that a priest from somewhere else could become one with the people because he was seeing that with the people who were at his parish in Okarchi. They came from Belgium and Germany, France. They came to serve. We're still in Oklahoma mission territory. We are 9% Catholic in the cities. In the countryside, it's much, much less than that. I just think that's important because to him, even though he was a local guy who didn't travel anywhere and going to Emmitsburg, Maryland was a huge deal, right? He was the only one from anywhere in the this side of the U.S. They were all from the East Coast and one from Puerto Rico in his class and then him. So, that was alien, but having priests go somewhere and give the, their life, their stories of those parish priests that 
he served a salter server with who went also out to the farm the next day and worked with them doing the crops. So I don't know. I just think it's an interesting circle of life for his family and his culture got served in the U.S. And then he went and did the same mm-hmm. in Guatemala. Right. We are one church, one body, right? Right. right. <laughs> so it's supposed to work. Yeah. Yes. What, when was Father Stan killed, Maria? 1981. July 28th of 1981. Is that going to be his feast day? Yeah, that's already a feast day here in the Region 10 area of the country. He can be claimed already here. That's great. Great. And there's a new big shrine that was just put up to honor Father Stan in Oklahoma. Tell us about that. Yes, we have been working on a shrine I say we very loosely, we, the Church of Oklahoma, have been working on a shrine to have a permanent place for his body. And it has been dedicated as of February of this year. It was a beautiful ceremony, and we had people from Guatemala and from all over come to celebrate here. And his body is permanently interned in the small chapel of the shrine. And it's a lot like what you were describing about the altars of old times. In the chapel, his coffin was literally lifted into the altar and then a slab put on top. And that's where he's permanently interned. The shrine itself, it has a colonial style. And I think it very much echoes the Church of Santiago, that Spanish colonial style of that church. And I invite formally everybody who's listening to come and visit the Church of Oklahoma and learn more about Stanley Brother here. They'll learn not only about Father Stan, but the circumstances, our own history as Americans, the history of Latin America. Yes. Not all of it glorious but we can glory in our missionaries. Uh, Absolutely. I think saints in general reveal that glory of God, right? And we see that in Father Stan in pretty much every story that I tell in that book because he was real and genuine and he was very average like me. (laughs) Uh, but he was faithful, and he really gave his all. I think his death really was a reflection of how he lived. He gave his all in how he lived. So it wasn't a, it didn't stand out by itself that he was a martyr, I don't think. I think it's the way he lived his life that he would still be considered a saint. That's a beautiful way to put that. I think the miracle, too, might be for that whole idea that there are 15 priests where there had been none for 500 years. That defies logic in numbers. That's exceptional. And why would that be except for that a life of holiness, (laughs) which is what everybody's called for? And so in looking for results, that's amazing. And I think I'd call it a miracle. If something happened in East Japan, Pee-pee here, and uh, 10 years later, because of one priest, there were 15 vocations. 
Yeah, we'd be celebrating that pretty much. Oh, they'd be studying. You'd have oh, I mean, vocation directors around the country to send on that parish. Exactly. <laughs> What's the secret? And I think sainthood would be automatic. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting, again, that uh, what Father Stan was not an academic. You said he had trouble in school. He was a very quiet man, apparently. He'd just come home and surprise everybody with, oh, decided to be a priest. You're not telling anybody or whatever. Yeah. And, and then I'm sure he surprised them with, yeah, I'm going to Guatemala. And just <laughs> he was just a doer. He was a worker bee. He was, a, he was. farm tough. That's the other reason. The other answer to your question, Tom, how did he have the energy to do all this stuff? Yeah. You, you got to be tough to grow up on a farm in that's the 1930s. True. You that's know true. what I'm saying? That's yeah, that's like guys, working out the gym every day. This I, remember, guy, you know, I grew up in the <laughs> South. You got to be tough to grow up on a farm in the 1960s or 1970s. <laughs> right. It's tough work. It's hard work. That's, that's why right. I no longer am on a farm and I'm now in New Jersey. Okay. Oh, that's why I went to college. I took a look at that hard work thing and I said, no, that's yeah, not, I'm not doing this. Yeah, yeah, really. But yeah, he just, was, he was not, he was a tough guy and he was a doer. Even when he was in the seminary, there are stories about how he would fix up the grotto and he was, do, he was a part-time handyman for the place. Basically he was, I mean, he, he reminds me of St. Joseph, quiet, doer, Shows love in action. Not a lot of big words, not a lot of talking, but a real doer. And again, the thing is, all he did was love people in a way they need to be loved, whether it was feed them, talk to them, bury them, whatever. And this made him a target of a national government. Yes. Because the gospel... If you're actually doing it, talking about it's not a problem. You can talk all you want, but doing it, that's a threat to people. In fact, one of the interesting things about the Latin American situation is all the dead clergy, all of them, I don't know what, I'm trying to guess how many martyrs do we have, 30 or something, total between El Salvador and Guatemala and all this stuff, you know, because no one's going to kill you if all you're doing is teaching kids to say their prayers, but you shake hands with an Indian. You start saying, mm-hmm. well, these are human beings. You got to feed them. You got to love them. Well, them's fighting words. I think we lose that. And it's just amazing to me because he was not working with Che Guevara and praising Fidel Castro. He was feeding kids. And they said, no, we can't have this. One of the things that we do in, with all our guests is ask the question, and in light of his life and the work that you've done in spreading the word of his life, there are people in our church who are still thinking of leaving with all the problems we have, and there are people who are sometimes thinking of coming in. Do you have any words that you could share or words of wisdom or thoughts or questions about how you would address somebody who's actually thinking of leaving the church or coming in? Those people in the door, they're in the door and they can't make up their mind which way to go. So the first thing I would invite the person to do is, why are you at the door? What brought you there? How did you come in? And when you're a step inside, what is it that's calling you? And I hope that it would be a Eucharistic presence lived in the community, both in receiving the Eucharist, but also in living it. And I think Father Stan has that. He's definitely a good example of what a priest living out that Eucharistic presence can do and what a difference he can make. And I 
pray that when I grow up, I have a little bit of that myself. <laughs> For everybody that I encounter, I think I, that is very attractive when you have, find someone that's doing that. And I don't know. I think that's that that would be one of the ways for me that Father Stan could help you answer that question. I, I think that's a beautiful answer. Yeah. I love that answer. I really do. Eucharistic presence in the community. Okay. Yeah. That's what we're all called to. And Amen to that. Yeah. That's a Before we leave, I just I just happened to look at the demographics, and we have a couple of people from Guatemala listen to it. Hey, shout out to Guatemala, uh, El Salvador. Ula. Yeah. So um, how many? Couple, two in Guatemala, one in El Salvador, Jamaica. We got everybody hungry. I know. Uh, okay. Well, we'll do. We're doing Central America. Bienvenidos a todos. <laughs> yes. Yeah, welcome. Saludos desde but, Oklahoma. Say yes. Very good. Your mind from New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the book is The Shepherd Who Didn't Run. The author is Maria Ruiz Scaperlanda, and the publisher is our Sunday visitor. And this book, The Shepherd Who Didn't Run, is inspiring and uplifting and educational of current, recent, past history that will do nobody any harm and do you a lot of good. It's a great book. <laughs> And I'm just going to say to answer Drew's question, the reason I stay in the church is people like Father Stan Rother mm -hmm. and Maria Scaparland. And we thank her so very much for sharing this wonderful book and this wonderful story with us. Thank you so, so much for, for being open-hearted listeners like that, that could hear all the levels of the story. I'm very grateful for the time to be here with you and talk about Blessed Stanley Rother. And seriously, I invite everybody to come to Oklahoma. We would make a great pilgrimage. Anyway, thank you all. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com deaconspod.com that's d-e-a-c-o-n-s with an s deacons plural pod all one word dot com and of course we'd love to hear your comments at our email address which is deaconspod again with an s deacons at paulist.org that's p-a-u-l-i-s-t dot org love to hear from you that's our offering we thank you for being with us on behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.